Welcome to Christian Renewal Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning in to our series, Seven Letters, which is an in-depth study of the seven letters John recorded in the first four chapters of Revelation. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. Father, we don't need another word from a man. We need to hear the voice of the Holy Ghost in our midst. God, I am weak, infallible. We ask that you would anoint this time. Lord, every word that comes from my lips that's not from your heart, may it fall to the wayside, God. But we're desperate that you would put something in this time, that at some, some point, some moment over the next 30 minutes, that we would hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Lord, everything that comes from you, let it pierce. We believe this word to be God-inspired. Speak to us through it. Lord, we don't need the intellect of man. We need the presence of the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Thank you, Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen, amen. Paul concludes Ephesians chapter 6. Um includes the epistle of Ephesians in chapter 6 with um, his passage on the armor of God and emphasizing the spiritual warfare that we experience. Um, Chapter 6, verse 12 reads, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul encouraged the Ephesians to remember that they're in a spiritual battle, that there's spiritual warfare happening. Remember, he tells them to put on the whole armor of God and that they shouldn't forget that they don't wrestle with people. But what they're actually wrestling with is principalities and the heavenly places. I think it's this revelation that that life is not just what you see and what you can touch. The materialistic worldview is greatly followed in that it does not acknowledge that there is a spiritual war that, in, that, that it involves what we experience in life. That our life is more than just matter bumping against matter, but there are things happening in the heavenly places. And when the church forgets that there are things happening in the heavenly places, the church will walk away from prayer. The church will lose discernment. The church will lose its prophetic utterance. I thought this week about um, Smith Wigglesworth, the plumber, when I was in ministry school. I used to say that I wanted to be a plumber, partly because I have a bad habit of letting my butt crack hang out, and partly because I wanted to be Smith Wigglesworth. I'm working on that, y'all. I'm maturing through that. Forgive me. You're like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. My, uh, I'm about to go down a road I shouldn't go. Forgive me. Forgive the Lord to keep me on track. They say that after Smith Wigglesworth passed, they, um, the doctors w- were doing the autopsy and they noticed that his knees were greatly deformed and they looked in his knees. That were, they were missing much of the bone and cartilage um, that were there. And as they went to his home, they noticed that there were, there were two places where the, the wood and the floors um, were, uh, were beginning to decompose. They were grind down from the knees of Smith Wigglesworth. Some say that um, when he prayed in a room, the glory of God would be so manifest that um, that people would leave. They would say the presence of God was so strong that they couldn't stand to um, to sit in the room. 
one of the stories often told of Smith, Smith Wigglesworth um, is the story that he was, um, he was sleeping one night and having terrorizing dreams. And um, as he dreamed, he eventually was startled awake. And when he awoke, he realized that there was a demonic presence in the room. And Smith Wigglesworth said that he looked over to see um, what he thought was Satan himself manifested sitting at the end of his bed. There was some kind of demon manifested at the end of his bed. And the story goes that Smith Wigglesworth looked at the demon that who he thought was Satan and said, oh, it's just you and rolled over and went back to sleep. Remember the controversy surrounding Smith Wigglesworth's ministry is that he would often, again, he was a plumber and just a normal man, and he began to believe that God would heal the sick, and so he started to call these healing meetings, and he would often, um, when praying for someone who's sick, what he said is that he would discern that some sickness was demonically inspired, and what he would do if someone had a tumor in their stomach that he thought was demonically inspired is he would punch it, kick it, elbow it, something, there would be some kind of force that he would do, and there was um, great controversy because he would slap people and kick old people, um, seemed to work for him. But if any of our prayer ministers punch, kick, slap, or people's elbow you at any time in the near future, they better have a dang good excuse, okay? But Smith Wigglesworth, like Paul, was thoroughly convinced that we are engaged in a spiritual war that impacts more of our lives than we'd like to recognize. We don't believe here as a church, we don't believe that dreams should be given the same authority or place as scripture. For that reason, I don't share them often from the pulpit. The primary function of the pulpit is to share the inspired and fallible word of God. But I dreamed last week um, that we had a great move of God in our midst. I dreamed that it was a normal work day and Micah and I were trying to set up. Sometimes Micah and I get in here trying to fix stuff. And, uh, and Micah and I were in here trying to set up the stage, trying to fix something. And, and young people began to flow through the side doors and the room was filled with people praying. It was a work day and Micah and I were trying to get things done and people were filling the room to pray and worship. And um, as a dream, there was a woman who came in and she prayed with us and she worshiped and um, as we got done praying, I, I picked up, y'all know I carry a backpack, I picked up my bag, and I walked out, and I put my bag in the car, like I do, and I got ready to go home, and the woman came out to me, and she said, you stole my purse, and I said, I didn't steal your purse, um, I didn't, and she said, let me look in your bag, and she opened my backpack, and there was my purse in her bag, and I knew that I didn't put my purse in her bag, but that someone had put it there, and then the next day, or as the dream went on, you know how dreams are, um, the woman began to accuse me of having a pornography problem to our church leadership, and I said to the church leadership, I did not have a pornography problem. You are welcome to examine my computer. Um, and as they went through my computer, there was a slew of emails from someone who had emailed me a slew of pornographic images, making it look like I had a pornography problem. And the next day, she brought a woman to the church, and the woman claimed that I was having an affair with her. Um, the woman couldn't tell you my name, where I lived, my phone number. She didn't know a thing about me, but for some reason, she was successful in convincing people that I was having an affair with this woman. And this goes on, this woman constantly trying to manipulate me. And finally, I confront the woman in the dream, and I say, look, this has got to stop. You, these are false accusations. It's got to stop. And the woman says to me, I'll stop with the accusations if you'll let me preach once a month. And as I prepared for this, this, this sermon, I kept thinking about that. I'll stop with all the accusations if you'll let me preach once a month. And I felt like God was saying, um, recognize that what you're dealing with is spiritual warfare, that there is spiritual warfare in our midst. And many times the enemy gives us these kind of little options. Like if you'll just compromise with me a bit, all of the warfare will stop. 
And I think culturally, I'm being a little bit, um, I'll be a little bit controversial for a moment. This isn't the intent of my sermon, so I'll get off of it real quick. I think culturally, our pastors and leaders have been intimidated. And I think um, our culture hurls things at us like, you are a bigot, like you are a homophobic. And y'all, I'm not homophobic. I have many friends who are homosexual I pray for and love. I'm not homophobic. I do think homosexuality is a sin. And so the, the prophetic role of the pastor is 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 quenched as our culture tries to intimidate us. And if I would just stop speaking the truth, just a little, just give the enemy just a little bit of room in the pulpit, I think the enemy says, I'll stop if you'll just give me an inch. There's warfare in our midst. And as I woke up, I said to myself, that dream was Jezebelish. And I told, I told Haley, my wife, I said, this is the dream I had just in case I get any accusations. And I told some of the staff, I said, y'all look through my computer today because if somebody starts sending me stuff, I need y'all to testify for me. And there were a few things that I felt like in the next couple of days where someone tried to manipulate me and I was a little on guard. But as I prepared for our text this morning, Jesus will say to Thyatira, the church at Thyatira, he will say, you've tolerated Jezebel in your midst. There are many interesting things to say about that line, you tolerate Jezebel. First, tolerance is not the chief ethic of the church. We are not called to tolerance. Our culture screams tolerance out of one side of her mouth while she throws stones at us out of the other side. Um, but, But tolerance is not the chief ethic of the church. Love is. How many know when you love your son and daughter and they got a drug problem, you don't tolerate it, you confront it. You tolerate Jezebel. There are some things that God is calling us as a church and our larger church in our cultural context to no longer tolerate. Second, the fact that they tolerate Jezebel does not mean that they blindly followed her or even mostly agreed with her. The church at Thyatira tolerated her. Not you follow her or you agree with her doctrinally. You tolerate her ministry. No, there were many in Thyatira who saw her for what she was, a false prophetess, and saw the negative implications of her teaching, yet they allowed her to continue. She was not the primary teacher. She was not the primary focus, but she taught a little. She had a little influence and the leaders of the region, I think, rolled their eyes when she stood up and began to proclaim her next prophetic revelation. But for some reason, they had no boldness to confront the influence. They saw a woman with a passion to prophesy and a small following, and they rolled their eyes when she spoke. But they never created boundaries. They never confronted the the issue. They never stepped out to disciple her. Or shepherd her people. The scripture often talks about the kingdom as leaven. It also often talks about the kingdom of hell as leaven. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It talks about the kingdom that way. It also talks about the kingdom of hell and sin in that way. A little bit of sin leavens the whole lump. Now Jesus will give Thyatira an extended rebuke. Because they didn't have the spiritual discernment to realize that they were tolerating the ministry of hell. What they were tolerating was the ministry of an ancient demonic entity. Let's read our text from Revelation chapter 2. Y'all okay with me so far? Y'all are like, you're a little bit serious today. Forgive me. 
And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and your faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. Unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, do not lay, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as the earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thyatira was an insignificant city. I would think that the church at Thyatira was smaller than the church at Ephesus or Pergamon. Yet Jesus says more to the church at Thyatira than he does to any other church in these seven letters. He has the most to say to Thyatira. Now much of it is rebuke. But his words communicate over and over this truth that his eyes are on his children. Even the small things he sees. Even the church that feels small and insignificant and out of the public eye. Jesus watches. His eyes are like a flaming fire. He sees. He says, I search the mind and the heart. I see it all. The introduction of the text is encouraging. Ephesus abandoned her first love. Jesus said, repent and turn. But he says about Thyatira that she was committed to lifelong discipleship. That you do more works today than you did at first. They were still growing, still learning. Their works were more. That doesn't just mean their outward works. That means their worship, their prayer lives. They were doing more to honor Jesus today than they did at first. They committed to discipleship. There is no, I've been there and done that in the Christian walk. If you are still breathing, you should still be growing. You still have things to learn and work to do. To the older generation in the room, I want to say this to you. You have not been there, done that, made it. The younger generation, we still need you to co-labor. We still need you to work. We do not need the older generation in the body of Christ to get out of the way. We need you to keep working, to keep laboring, to keep praying, to keep giving, to keep leading, to keep evangelizing, to keep discipling your grandkids, to keep leading Bible studies and leading in small groups, to keep cooking and to keep giving money. We need you to keep, we don't need you to get out of the way. There is no, I have the t-shirt in the Christian church. Now Thyatira has hardly been excavated. Archaeologists and historians don't know that much about Thyatira. Again, because it was a largely insignificant city. What we do know about Thyatira, the one thing that we know emphatically, is that Thyatira was filled with trade guilds. Trade guilds were these associations of 
kind of craftsmen and workers who came together, um, and it kind of controlled the economy of a particular trade. And so if you were a worker of cloth, you would belong to a trade guild who sold cloth, and that would give you an economic advantage. It was kind of what controlled the economy. Now, what we know from history about these trade guilds is that they weren't they developed into being more than just the economic thing that happened. They also had, um, the trade guilds would have a chief idol. And when you came to the meeting, the, the, the guild, when you came, you would worship the idol. You would bring a sacrifice to the idol. You would all share a meal, which was the food sacrifice to the idol. And then oftentimes, depending on the idol, there would be sexual immorality that happened that was a part of the idol worship. Now, churches, uh, the church in Thyatira, the, the, the workers in Thyatira, this was their context. Now, you remember when Paul goes to Philippi, remember he has the vision to go to Macedonia, the first city, he reaches his Philippi. When he steps into Philippi, he meets a group of God-fearing women who are praying outside of the city. And one of the women that gets saved at that experience is a woman named Lydia. Do you remember? Lydia was a seller of purple goods from Thyatira. Thyatira was known for um, this, this indigo-colored, um, what is the word, dye? That, that cloth would be um, soaked in. And so Lydia made her living selling cloth from Thyatira. It's likely that she was in Philippi bringing goods from Thyatira. Many scholars suggest, and I think it's probably true, that the church in Thyatira was probably planted when Lydia came back from Philippi to Thyatira. And, it, and some suggest that, that this may have been an issue that Lydia had to deal with because Lydia bringing cloth to Philippi probably belonged to a trade guild. She was probably having to face this issue herself. So the guilds or these associations were first a means of economic advantage, but they became intertwined with idolatry. Most suggest that this is the sin that Jezebel is related to. Almost every scholar agrees that this is the sin that Jezebel is related to um, in our text that we read today. The, t- the text said that Jezebel, the prophetess, is encouraging this, the saints of Thyatira to take part in sexual immorality and idolatry. Sexual immorality in, in, in Scripture does not always refer to literal sexual immorality. Sometimes in Scripture it refers to false worship. God, God will say all throughout the prophets, you have committed adultery with Egypt, or you've committed adultery with Baal, that God. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that the church at Thyatira is committing acts of sexual immorality in the natural realm, but at least means that they're committing acts of sexual immorality in the spiritual realm by participating in false worship at the encouragement of Jezebel the prophetess. The church very well would have taken a financial blow if they had refused and abandoned their guilds. Those who stood their ground and refused to partake likely had a less advantageous lifestyle. Their homes were smaller. They had less to give their kids, less inheritance to leave. They paid a price in order to live faithfully to Jesus. But some took part of the guilds and they participated in the false worship and they continued their life in the church. And they lived wealthy, but they offended Jesus, greatly offended Jesus. How many would say, I'd rather be poor and not offend Jesus? From context, it seems that, that this prophetess encouraged these people through her prophetic ministry to continue in this form of compromise. It's likely that her claim was that those who would not participate in the guilds were just legalistic. 
It's likely that her claim was, don't, don't worry about those Christians who refuse to participate in the guilds. They are religious. They are bound by the law. They are uptight. Those people who participate, who refuse to participate in the guilds, they are not winning friends and influencing people. And if you continue, you can win friends and influence people. Yet Jesus, from the eyes of heaven, Jesus says, this is compromise, it is immorality, and he is greatly displeased. So Ephesus has forsaken her first love, resisted false apostles. Thyatira has continued to grow, yet tolerated a false prophetess who was encouraging the saints to compromise. Assumingly, the weaker believers are compromising under her ministry. So when, what do we know about Jezebel? That's the question we have to ask. Who is she? What is her ministry? It's almost absolutely true that this prophetess's name was not Jezebel. No Christian in the first century would have been named Jezebel. If that was your name, you would have changed it real quick. Remember when Jesus wrote to Pergamum, he called their, their, their leaders, he said they taught the teaching of Balaam. So I don't think that this prophetess's name was Jezebel, but I do think she was a false prophet. Jezebel never actually prophesied in the Old Testament account. She supported the prophets of Baal. Jezebel's um, a father was a king, a pagan king, and in pagan cultures, um, often, many scholars believe this and agree with this, often in pagan cultures, the, the, the chief deity of the region, um, the king's daughter would be the high priestess to the chief deity. So it's very likely, and many scholars believe, and, and ancient Jewish um, writings suggest this, many scholars believe that Jezebel was the high priestess to Baal. Um, that, that, that she, she was not a prophet, but she participated, promoted. It was her job to, to make sure that Baal worship in her home region continued to flourish. And so, of course, when she married Ahab and, and was grafted into the life of Israel, she had an agenda, an agenda to promote um, the, the worship of Baal in Israel. But she was not a prophet. She never prophesied in Scripture. So from that fact, I assume, and many scholars assume, that this woman in Thyatira, who was operating in the spirit of Jezebel, was a prophetess. She did operate in prophetic ministry. We know that women who prophesy are not an issue, not an issue in the New Testament. Women that prophesy are not an issue for the early church. The early church fathers mentioned many women who prophesied and prophesied faithfully. Acts 2 quotes Joel 2 saying that in the last days, men and women should prophesy. Sons and daughters will prophesy. Acts 21 says that Philip the evangelist, who was a godly man, had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And they were with Agabus as he prophesied a great famine. The, the New Testament account is that women can prophesy. Jezebel hears sin. is not that she is a woman and prophesies. That's not the issue. It's the spirit by which she prophesies. Jesus says this is the same demonic influence that Jezebel brought. It's, some suggest that it's the same demonic entity. That's, that may be a stretch. There's no way to know that for sure. But it's at least a similar demonic influence as what was operating in the days of Jezebel and Ahab. So again, the church is growing in discipleship, yet they tolerate the demonic strategies of Jezebel in their midst. Some throughout church history have, history have taught that Jezebel was the pastor's wife. You better not be calling my wife Jezebel, okay? You're going to catch these hands. That's what we said in high school. But Jezebel was a manipulator. 
She usurped the authority of her husband, bypassed his role as the king of Israel. She vigorously promoted Baal worship in Israel, which included blatant blatant acts of sexual immorality, which did include witchcraft, which did include um, child sacrifice. She intimidated Elijah, the man of God, after he had called down fire from heaven. He was paralyzed by fear at her threats. She had the man Naboth with righteous intentions who would not give up his field inherited from his fathers. She had him murdered under false allegations because her husband wanted the field. Jezebel's ambition was neither godliness nor the development of character. It was the acquisition of power and and pleasure. Jezebel, the spirit of Jezebel, does not promote godliness nor the development of character. It was the acquisition of power and pleasure. Jesus says she teaches the deep things of Satan. Many, many view her to be a great spiritual teacher. Jesus says it's the spirituality of hell. Many view her as carrying new revelation, fresh revelation that is articulated in such a way as to make people think that she's rather profound. Heaven calls it hell. And the imagery that Jesus intends to portray is that the church is like Ahab. And the church has, um, in Thyatira, has allowed her presence to continue. 1 Kings 21, verse 25 says this. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. Jezebel incites the king of Israel to false worship. Jezebel incites the king of Israel to do more Wickedness in the eyes of God than any other king before him. She incites him. And Jesus says to Thyatira, you are tolerating that woman Jezebel who is inciting evil against the Lord of hosts. Now, I won't talk forever. There are just three things that I want to say um, that we need to be mindful of as we approach this text. First, the church at Thyatira lacks spiritual discernment. No one in Thyatira had considered this woman from the perspective of heaven. There was no mind of Christ in the church of Thyatira. They only saw with natural eyes, considered this issue from their carnal faculties. To them, this woman was somewhat of a nuisance, but they had no eyes to see that she was actually advancing hell in their midst. This is an indictment of prayerlessness in the church of Thyatira. Had anyone in Thyatira sat before the Lord and asked God, God, what do you see when you look at our church? Had any pastor or leader in Thyatira gone on a fast and, and laid before God in prayer and said, Oh God, show us what pleases you about us and show us what displeases you about us. Had anyone in Thyatira heard her false prophecies and sat before God and said, Oh God, what do you want us to do with this? No, they just looked with their natural eyes and they said, Oh, this woman's kooky. We'll just... Give her a little influence. No spiritual insight. They only had eyes to see what could be seen in the natural. We must have discernment in these days. As a community, we have got to seek the face of God. Again, I'm crying that intercessors rise up. We need those who dreams and have see dreams and visions and, 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 and have prophetic words to share what they're hearing. We need insight from heaven. 
I think that they knew her teaching to be anti-biblical. They didn't follow her again. They tolerated her, but they had no spiritual insight. First, indictment against the church at Thyatira. There was no spiritual discernment. Second, indictment against the church at Thyatira. They had no prophetic unction. Every prophet is called to challenge the systems of this world. In order for a church to remain pure in a secular society, it's necessary that some man or woman of God has prophetic boldness to confront evil. There's an old saying, um, old men of God of old used to say that if you were going to be a preacher of repentance, you better be sure that your head is already dedicated to heaven. What they were saying was that um, every great preacher Every great prophet of old who confronted the, the wickedness of their culture lost their head at some point. If you want to preach repentance, you better be, go ahead and dedicate your head to heaven and, and realize that culture is going to take it off. It was a play on the image of John the Baptist. God is continually telling the prophets, and Jeremiah in particular comes to mind, to be bold in the face of their adversaries. To speak the truth, to boldly confront iniquity and sin. Jezebel of the Old Testament was a strong-willed, intimidating woman. Again, has Elijah running at one point. In order to stand and expose her ministry in Thyatira, there must be a prophet with a backbone of steel who will stand and look that demonic entity eye to eye and declare the truth, and they did not have one. Third, Thyatira has no true pastoral concern. There was no one who cared enough about the few that followed the ministry of this woman to confront the issue. There was collateral damage by allowing her to continue in her falsehoods, and they were unmoved by this collateral damage. Real love for Jesus and love for people in our midst, pastoral concern, requires of us a willingness to disciple and to teach, even when it's a bit uncomfortable. Where were the disciples in Thyatira? Where were the older, mature men and women of God in Thyatira who said, I see that issue and I see that young woman in error. Let me invite her out to lunch. Let me invite her to my Bible study. Let me sit before her with her in prayer and look at the scriptures together. Let me try to disciple this group. I, th- I, th- I think these people are susceptible to the demonic. We've got we've to do discipleship. We've got to care enough about them to do discipleship. Where is the real pastoral concern in Thyatira? There was none. Pastoral concern is not just for the pastor to carry. It's for the heart of the church. This woman's ministry is causing damage in this church. And no one has confronted, no one has discipled, no one has brought truth. Is it that they didn't have the discernment? Is it that they didn't have the boldness? Is it that they didn't have the pastoral concern. I think it's a bit of all three. I want you to notice, as I'm, I'm going to wrap down, I want you to notice the, the posture of Jesus for a moment. He says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses. Hear the mercy in Jesus' words. I've given her time. I've been patient. I also want you to hear this morning that sometimes a lack of judgment is not a sign of God's approval. 
It's a sign of his mercy. Sometimes it's God giving time for repentance. He says in 2 Peter 3, 9, it's not his will that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's not slow as someone counts slowness in his coming. You need to be sure that you don't mistake God's graciousness for passivity. You need to be sure that you don't mistake God's mercy for passivity. Many in our day live in sexual morality and greed and some hidden sin and go about unexposed for years and think, oh, God must not be that offended by sin. God's not that serious about sin anymore. That's not the teaching of the New Testament. I think there are some in the church who would say, even pastors in the West, who would say, I've been having an affair for years and God has not removed me from leadership. He's not concerned with sin anymore. And they mistake God's kindness and patience for passivity. And it's not the biblical testimony. I want to encourage you, if you're living in hidden sin this morning and God has not yet exposed you, it's not because God does not care. It's because God is being kind to you. I, don't, I want to encourage you that today is the day of repentance. Now is the time to repent. The entire rebuke given here is the grace of God. Look at verse 22 again. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. Her being Jezebel, because Jezebel has refused to repent, even though Jesus said that I myself have confronted her. Jezebel has refused to repent. And then he says, those who commit adultery with her, meaning partake in her spiritual immorality, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. Even here, Jesus is giving a warning to those at Thyatira who are participating in the ministry of Jezebel and says that I will throw you into great tribulation unless you repent. I really desire your repentance. Still giving opportunity for repentance. His kindness, we say, leads to repentance. Sometimes his kindness is experienced healing. Sometimes his kindness is experiencing a good, stern rebuke. His kindness always leads to repentance. Either way, it's kindness. The heart of the shepherd is to give time for repentance. He still cares about the individual. But it seems to me that the church at Thyatira did not carry enough of a pastoral heart, enough of spiritual discernment, enough of prophetic utterance and unction to confront this issue. Pull this woman aside. Sit her down for ministry. Study the Bible with her. And because of that, they receive the longest letter from Jesus. They receive the sternest rebuke. They receive the, the, the most thorough account of the displeasure of Jesus. So what do we do with this in conclusion? Would, would someone from the worship team come? First, I want you to remember that the eyes of Jesus intently gaze on his bride. Doesn't matter if you're the biggest, most influential church in the biggest city, or if you're a small church in some podunk town, Jesus watches his children. The eyes of Jesus, he says, are like flaming fire. They're on his bride intently. There are many who teach today that the gospel of grace causes God to only look upon us with pleasure. And that's so true, emphatically true to some extent. The gospel makes me fully loved, fully adored. I don't have to earn a thing. I am fully accepted in Jesus. But that does not mean that God looks the other way when I choose to sin. He is jealous for me. His jealousy for me causes him to come in confrontation at times. 
His jealousy for me causes him displeasure. When I, as his bride, go after other gods and commit sexual morality, he feels the same sense of disgust and displeasure as I would feel if my wife had had an affair on me. There's that sense of, I am jealous for my bride. It would crush me. It would break my heart to find out that my wife was having an affair. It crushes Jesus when his bride goes after false gods. It crushes the heart of Jesus that the church in the West is greedy and materialistic. It crushes Jesus that the church in the West is filled with pornography, is filled with sexual morality. It crushes the heart of Jesus that we continually compromise the standard of godliness because we'd rather have our own pleasure. It crushes the heart of Jesus that we care more about comfort and pleasure than we do about our community coming to know Jesus. It's idolatry, it's morality, and Jesus feels the same displeasure that I would feel if my wife was having an affair on me. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. He's frustrated because he loves you. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care. It doesn't mean that you're not his bride. You are his bride. That's why he's frustrated. Jealousy. Jealousy. Go ahead and stand to your feet. I want to end this morning pondering that thought for a moment. Jealousy. Some of you may be here this morning and you don't know Jesus. And you're like, you're a little bit harsh, man. I don't know if I want to come to your church. I want you to know this morning that, that, that Jesus is patient towards you. That Jesus has endured the most cruel and harsh death of all of history. He spilled his very blood for you. You have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But your sins have been atoned for on the cross of Calvary. That means this. That one day you will meet God and you are fully guilty. But if you would come and declare Jesus as Lord. That even though you are fully guilty. You would be declared fully righteous. Because Jesus out of his own good will and pleasure exchanged places with you he experienced the harsh cruel death that you deserve so that you could have eternal joy with him in heaven this morning if you don't know jesus i want to tell you this morning that he's jealous for you altar ministers if you would go ahead and come this morning i want to wait just for a moment i want you guys to give me 30 seconds and what i want to do um For 30 seconds, I want you to take a moment and to ask God, God, is there anything in me that you are displeased with? And the altars are open. There is no condemnation in this house. We do not embrace condemnation. But what I want to do is if you feel the pricking of the Holy Spirit, I want to ask you to come get an altar. I don't care if you're in leadership here. I don't care if you're on staff, you're an elder, or or I I don't care what your role is. If the Holy Spirit pricks your heart, I want to ask you to come and let's spend some time in repentance. Spiritual pride is not going to cut it in the coming days. It's not going to cut it in the coming days. Judgment starts in the house of the Lord. Those of us in leadership, those of us who have been in church for 20, 30 years, we need to be the, the ones to lead in repentance. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.